history through a house. A look at British history through the doors of Longlands. Giving you the facts, not just in the history books. With your host, Isadora Martin Dye. Welcome to History Through a House. Today we're going to try something a little different, but we've still got the same people in the room. You have my husband, Ben. Hi, it's me. I'm Ben. And you have my cousin, Adam. Hi. We are going to talk today about an agar cooker. For those that are American, you might never have heard of them, but I suggest you have a quick Google so you at least have a vague idea of what we're talking about. It's spelled A-G-A, or capitals. And to be totally transparent, we have recorded this podcast in the past, but the sound quality was terrible. So we're all going to try and pretend like it was the first time we've done this. So we're going to talk about the history of the Aga. Obviously, for those that are regular listeners, we're jumping way outside our normal comfort zone of going through the British history from its beginning. And that is because we have a really old Aga in Longlands. Due to the fact that the chimney that flues it right now is one of our major sources of leaks, we have been trying to figure out a way to get the chimney removed, which meant we had to figure out what date the Aga was. This took me down a really long path of history that I wasn't expecting to enjoy or find so interesting. And since it's totally left me feeling fascinated and anyone I've talked about it fascinated, I figure we put together a very special podcast, Jump Forward Way in History, and talk about the beginnings of this British icon. This is our first special. It is our first special. Mm-hmm. We've been pretty linear up until this yeah. point. Okay, so. But we love cookers, so. <laughs> the <laughs> British exception. icon that it is. But to me and to a lot of other people, it is a piece of nostalgia that defines your childhood. I was very, very lucky and I grew up in a very privileged household where I had horses and a gorgeous kitchen with a big electric auger in it. And I remember many, many days in very wet England, coming home, soaking wet, climbing on the auger, putting my clothes to dry on the front, watching my mom cook dinner, making toast. It really was the heart of the home. And my mom one day when we were sitting on a beach, once famously said the only thing she would change about it, this paradise that we'd gone on holiday to, was that she wished there was an agar there too. Everyone who has an agar, I think, knows what I'm talking about. Um, they're not cheap, but yet many people, myself included, would swap almost anything to have an agar in their home. And when we moved back to England, I had two requests. One is that the house that we bought would have somewhere for me to ride my horses, and one, the other was that we would have an agar. Neither of these requests have really been met in Longlands, but I am very confident that very shortly we will have both those things, and maybe even the Aga that's in there we can get refurbished and start working. Let's take your way back. To the beginning of time. Do we even know if the Aga in Longlands works? No, there's no way to know really right now because it hasn't got an oil hookup and it would need refurbishment. Mm. It would need, like, servicing. We don't know if it's hooked up. We don't know. Like, there, I know there's an oil tank, but we haven't looked in the oil tank to see if there's any oil I would doubt it. You've got to clean up around that oil tank at some point. Is that it's the big metal one? The green thing? Up on the ledge? In between the, the alleyway and the chapel? Yeah. Okay. And I honestly think we might end up exploding. What? <laughs> uh, I mean, who? God knows how old that oil tank yeah. is. Yeah, that's the... true. Yeah, and the bottom doesn't look super... Yeah, Doesn't so... look great. Okay. 1802, the first range oven was invented, very probably by a man in Exeter. So keeping it local to begin with. His name was uh, George Bodley, and he invented the Kitchener Range. 
or he didn't, and it was invented by a name or guy named William Favell in 1929. There seems to be conflicting reports as to who was the first person. Wait, it was either invented in 1802 or 1929? 1829. Did you say kitchen arrange? Kitchener range. A kitchener range. Yes. Kitchen ER range. Space range. Okay. Yeah. Kitchener range. And is a kitchener, is that like a is that like a pronoun? Like I think it's just what they called it. It's, I think it's just its name. It's but if you're if you're a kitchen, like a kitchen is a place. Yes. Yeah. Like you're, you. But I think it took the role of a lot of the things that would typically be in a kitchen. Okay. Because up until this point, you were basically still cooking over fire. Fire. Okay. I think at this point they started to use fire to heat bricks, which were ovens around mm. the fire. I think where the confusion comes, so actually it's uh, the BBC's Open University that said that the original one was patented by George um, Bodley in Exeter. Mm-hmm. Other places say that... That's new here. Yeah, it's, it was, he had an iron foundry on the quay. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. William Favell designed and constructed the Lemington Kitchener range around 1828. Lemmings. And it was made of, I think the difference between what George Bodell did and Favell did is that Favell used cast iron panels, mm-hmm. which has became the standard in solid fuels. Whereas I wasn't able to find much about what George Bodley did, but reading into this, it was perhaps not solid fuel. It might have been. So is the argument just that this Flavel guy made a patent at something that was a little bit closer to what we now call a range? And yes. that's what. Okay. So, depending on who you talk to... What a silly thing to have an argument about. He was really pissed, because I guess he didn't patent it, and people then stole the idea. So there was a whole lot of information about how he was really mad about that. But the largest unit could replace five fires and two cookers. How much space up does does one fire take? A fireplace? Mm. Because I guess you can only cook one pot at a time over a fire. That makes sense. It's like one central heat unit, right? Just have a bigger fire? But like... Yeah, but then you have, like, the pots in the fire, and then you're, like, trying to do that, like, get them out of the big fire. No. Anyway, to give you an idea of how radical this was, in 1851, it won one of only 19 trophies at the Great Exhibition in the Crystal Palace Hyde Park. The Great Exhibition was what, again? It's the American version, it's the British version of a world fair. Yeah. Okay. So it was an exhibition where you would take all your inventions and the royals would go there and it would get graded. And think of it like Chelsea Flower Show, but for... Inventions. Inventions. Do they still do stuff like that? They've got to, right? But I think they're more trade shows now. Yeah, they wouldn't. You wouldn't show up and yeah, like, this is my solar-powered ray gun or something. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. And to show you that this was not only revolutionary from a scientific perspective... But from a cool perspective, Queen Victoria had one installed in Kensington Palace. Hmm. So this okay. is the first real idea of the, this range-type cooking was going to be associated with, that was going to take off. Mm-hmm. All right. This was one of the, the one that she had installed in Kensington was one of the cast iron ones. In the, it was the, the Lemington kitchen. Okay, and the, Did she have, like, does Kensington have a small kitchen? Did she have, like, a small kitchen staff? Was she entertaining at Kensington? I miss, no, Kensington was her main, one of her main palaces. Okay. So I'm assuming it was put in to allow her kitchen staff to be able to create huge amounts of okay. mm-hmm. So I'm just like, I'm thinking of the kitchens at Hampton Court Palace. Yeah. But those are way earlier, like hundreds of years earlier. But I don't think that there was much invention in kitchens between what you're thinking of in Hampton Court Palace and this point. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, oh, they okay. basically had like Spitfires that were like 15 to 20 feet across. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And their chimneys were massive, and you can basically have like 150 chickens spit roasting. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I was wondering more about. Like the kitchen there is like two massive rooms. Yeah. Like the like, su- huge. like yeah, like half the size. Of, like the two rooms probably together, the same size as the great hall there. Mm-hmm. And like I was just curious because obviously. Henry VIII had so many people with him constantly that, like, and he fed them all constantly. Queen mm-hmm. Victoria would have had exactly the same thing. That's what I was wondering. So it's like, okay, like, I've got a couple of Agas. I'm going to be able to feed yeah. 50 to 200 people at any given time. There's a lot of building problems to, to fix current lifestyles when it comes to cookers. So this would have also been as houses started to, the big houses mm-hmm. started to become smaller. Or more intimate mm-hmm. and as we get further on in the 1900s which we'll get to after the world wars happen staff levels get cu- cut so your space is limited your number of people are limited the person that you have stocking your fire is limited yeah. you go from extravagant to efficient well things yeah things become a lot more efficient so this is this is earlier than that really but it's a precursor to what mm-hmm. you're going to be seeing. but at this point like that contraption is like the peak of kitchen extravagance yeah absolutely which is um, like, and highlighted yeah. by <clears throat> Having the royal seal of yeah. approval. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to totally jump, put a pin in that. So this is mid to late 1800s. Mm-hmm. Everyone's cooking on these kitchenery things. Put a pin in that and we're going to jump to Sweden. It's a big old jump. It is a big old jump. You mean, where... you mean Switzerland? <laughs> Check out my calves. Um, <laughs> the big jump. Just get ready for the big jump. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, Gustav Dahlen is who we are going to be talking about. And Gustav Dahl. Gustav Dahl. And he was born in Sweden in the late 1800s. I actually couldn't find the year that he was born. But he was born... I thought it was 1874. Let's go with that. He was born in 1874. In which case, I think he lived to be about 106 years old. That's impressive. Don't we all? The Swedes. Pretty sure we all do. But he... Uh, uh, well, anyway. Gustav Dahl, born in Sweden. He was born actually onto a dairy farm. And he worked the family farm. He wasn't very educated in the traditional sense. But what he did manage to do was invent a machine that could define how much fat there was in milk. So, for instance, is it skimmed, semi-skimmed, 2%, whatever. 4%, whatever. Do we know how that machine works? No, I couldn't find much more information other than... Do you just float stuff in it? Just saying, let's forget about August. I want to <laughs> let's learn. talk about milk. Let's talk about milk. So he took his to milk invention, mm-hmm. and he went to show some in- other invention guy... Called Gustav de Lavelle. Too many Gustavs. De Lavelle. De Lavelle. D E. Okay. L A V A L. That's Spanish for the devil. Was impressed by the fact that he lit was a legit de- genius. Yeah. I mean, like, with very little education, he had managed to solve one of the biggest dairy conundrums. Okay, look, I don't say this often, but aren't we all <laughs> legit geniuses? <laughs> yeah. I am. I am a dairy genius. It's just funny to think that like dairy's biggest problem was. Well, we can't figure out how much fat is in this thing. Apparently, Gustav de Lavelle was actually a very famous inventor, and most of his inventions were to do with farming. Mm. Which mm. makes sense. I mean, yeah, you know, there's a lot of implementation. Who invented the, the cotton gin? I don't have any idea. Wow, I can't believe you. <laughs> Who was it? That's a great question. <laughs> we'll answer that next week. <laughs> okay, so he got persuaded to go off to university with a scholarship where he graduated basically top of his class. And after not very long, became chief engineer at the Gas Accumulator Company, which was later renamed Argo. 
What is the so does the GA stand for gas accumulator or does it just not stand for anything? You'll we'll get to that. Okay. I'm glad you remembered all the stuff we talked about in the mm-hmm. last episode. What, what, is, what does gas accumulator company spell out? I don't know. GAC. Oh right, but it's not GAC. It's not GAC. <laughs> he became managing director of Arga in nineteen oh nine. Wow. So he was forty five. <laughs> <laughs> or thirty five by our reckoning. Don't know. That sounds about right. We'll go with that. At 35, he became managing director of the gas accumulator company. Darlin had nothing to do with ovens and neither did Arga. Darlin worked with, and here's where we get technically science that is very rare for this podcast and you're going to learn some words. I don't know what you're talking about. We had a whole segment on the the Neolithic period called Big Science. That's true. Very science Actually, we do do science stuff almost yeah. every week. We're the most science history this podcast this side of the Mississippi. <laughs> that's a lot of the world. Most of that's ocean, though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. Initially, Darlin worked with acetylene, a flammable and sometimes explosive hydrocarbon gas. He invented the argamassin, a substrate used to absorb the gas, allowing safe storage and hence commercial exploitation. So the agar in agar was to do with his inventions of the agamassin. Okay. Okay. Acetylene produces an ultra-bright white light, which superseded the less bright LPG as the fuel of choice for lighthouse illuminations. What is LPG? Is that liquid propane gas? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Sure. Maybe. Do we not know that acronym? No, I didn't write out. Okay, Darlin exploited <laughs> Darlin exploited the new fuel, developing the Darlin light, which incorporated another invention, the sun valve. We are going to jump to an article written by the Manchester Courier in 1913. One of the resources that I love to read, but that we haven't been able to use much, is old newspaper archives. And most of, well, obviously in Anglo-Saxon times and previous to that, they weren't recording. So for this one, I actually managed to read some first-hand articles and advertisements and things like that, which is kind of nice to get some period ideas as to what people were thinking. So from this is from the Manchester Courier. The utilization light to extinguish light and of darkness to kindle light seems somehow contradictory in its terms. Slash, that sounds like a very convoluted sentence. That was terrible. <laughs> Gustav Dahlen received a Nobel Prize for his invention. The solar switchy light thing. As to how to make the lighthouse itself the light keeper. Mm. The practical results in his system, known as the Arga Marine Lights, are now in use along the coast 27 countries of the world. And it would not be too much to to complain, not be too (laughs) much to claim that genius has done more to secure the safe life at sea than anything else since the introduction of the wireless telegraph. The Arga Sun Valve, as it is called, depends solely for its action on the arrival or withdrawal of light. It is impervious to variations in temperature and therefore can be used with equally good results in any climate. So, as soon as darkness falls, the Arga beacon shines forth the result of automatic changes worked within the apparatus by the withdrawal of the energy daylight. And when the daylight is clearly established once more, the light is quenched by a reversal of the process. My Basically, he invented, like <laughs> he invented the dust till dawn light. The first security light. I'm still trying to figure this out. Okay. So lighthouses were was fire. Yes. Okay, cool. So they used to have to be a person. <laughs> <laughs> so they used it. to have to be a person <laughs> that lit the fire every night. Because now they're halogen bulbs. Yes. So they used to have to be a person that lit the fire every night and kept it going and 
all of that kind of stuff. What he invented was one that not only automatically did that. What did they do before lighthouses? Crashed. They had the big like fire towers from Lord of the Rings. Okay, That's, maybe somebody stood out like out there, was just torch. like just like rocks. <laughs> Don't hit these rocks. <laughs> That's possible too. Yeah. And he managed to make one that was automatic and a lot lot brighter. So he saved a lot of lives at sea. And for that, put a lot of lighthouse keepers out of work. Yeah, I know. They still Oof, had to uh, be there. Yeah, but like. I imagine before that it was like two or three people had to be there. <laughs> yeah, he was the cause of mass unemployment of lighthouse keepers. What a terrible it's man. Intense, yeah, corrupt industrialism. <laughs> okay, now look, before you get too mad at him for unemploying lighthouse keepers. And chefs, apparently, and cooks. Oh, that's and true, cook, yeah. Chefs, yeah. yeah. He, we're going to talk about the thing that happened to him in his life in 1912. Did he go so, deaf? No. Was he aboard the Titanic? <laughs> no. In 1912, not only did he win the Nobel Prize in Physics which is a huge, huge achievement. He I'm also... surprised I haven't heard of him then. We have like two or three of those. Yeah. Name one other person that either of you know that's won a Nobel Prize in physics. Albert Einstein. <laughs> he was actually up against Einstein in 1912. And that's why he said it. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than that, no other physicists exist in my brain. Stephen Hawking's? Oh, yeah, he probably won. Isn't Hawking? Hawking's? <laughs> Hawking? <laughs> Tony Hawk. Stephon Hawking. Tony Hawk, the <laughs> um, famous physicist. Okay. Neil deGrasse Tyson? I don't think he's won a Nobel Prize. He should have, just for his YouTube channel alone. It's genius. Anyway. Um, In 1912, Darlan was blinded by an explosion while he was testing acetylene. Which, as it, we learned, was highly explosive. Yes, Bill Nye the science and guy. And very bright. All right, all right. It was very bright. <laughs> <laughs> Too ill to attend the presentation of his Nobel Prize, his brother, Professor Albin Darlin, stood in his place. Albin? Yes. Mm. First name Albin? Yes. Last name Darlin? Yes. So related to Gustav Darlin? Yeah, his brother. His brother. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening. <laughs> Did he also live on the milk farm? I would assume so. He also became a professor somewhere. It was a very intelligent family, I'm assuming. And what were they doing milking cows? They had to start somewhere. I guess so. What happened after his he lost his eyesight? So his brother went to collect his Nobel Prize from him, and the presentation speech praised the quality of sacrificing his personal safety and scientific experiment, a compliment that com- compared Darlin with Nobel himself. Mm. Did the, Nobel die? He was probably dead at this point. He was dead at this point. I'm assuming working... Did he explode himself? So this is what the Academy had to say about his Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. The Royal Academy of Sciences believes it is acting in strict accordance with Alfred Nobel's will in awarding the Physics Prize to Chief Engineer Gustav Darlin in, recommend, in recognition of his remarkable invention of automatic valves designed to be used in combination with gas accumulators in lighthouses and light buoys. Mm, that's me. Light buoys? <laughs> you see, in England we say boys. They do. Buoys. <laughs> I just wanted, I just, it, yeah, I just didn't want to confuse anybody like in America. Boys. So he was forced to stay at home, missed out on picking up his Nobel Prize. And instead, he got to stay at home and listen to his wife, Alma, complain about the difficulties she experienced while cooking. Some of the difficulties that she complained about were that the cooker guzzled fuel, that she constantly had to watch over the food, and how poorly designed the whole appliance was. And that, and that them wabbits was real pesky. Because her name was Alma? Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Her complaints proved to be the starting for the Arga cooker. Mm. Most of the testing of the cooker was done in his private kitchen in Villa Ekabakan, 
which is a gorgeous yellow the cottage, thing. cottage house, and you can actually go stay on it on Home Away if you want to go and stay where the Nobel Prize for uh, winning physicist yeah. Darlin invented the Arga. Any excuse to go to Sweden. And he never actually had the chance to see the Arga with his own eyes. His family helped him with the development work, checking the temperatures, airflow, as the development proceeded. It was all invented at home. The furnace was unique and revolutionized the field of heating technology, centering around the blue flame, a smokeless combustion principle, and a heat efficiency that is second to none even today. Making use of radiant heat rather than direct heat like most furnaces, it was possible to use the same furnace for several different food dishes at the same time. For this reason, the cooker was a real boon in the majority of households. Famously, this is what people know now about the Aga, is that the cooker stays on all day and night, with a consistent heat that is regulated by a built-in thermostat, which in turn meant that the cooker required minimal attention and was fuel efficient. The coke, we'll get on to coke in a minute, needed to be topped up just Thank once God. a day. It would later be possible to fuel or power the cooker with wood, oil, gas, or electric. Coke was the major form of fuel that they were using in these cookers at that time. Obviously, we're not talking about the white powder that fuels other people, but like a PT. Solid um, fuel solid thing. Fuel. It's like a precursor to coal. Yeah. yeah. It's not as like deep in the ground. It's mm-hmm. not as hard to mine. It's basically the stuff underneath moss that is also combustible. So he died. And... <laughs> Okay, that's the end dead. of that. <laughs> he was dead. And? End of podcast. End, end of podcast. Okay. And he died. Okay, we're going to talk about another man. David Ogilvy. Ogilvy. Yes. He sounds like a really lame salesman who sells cookers. I like Jeff Ogilvy. Who's that? He's a golfer. If you want to, you can check out The Swingdom. <laughs> What's that, man? It's a golf podcast that me and Gunnar Kane are recording, so check that out when you get the chance. <laughs> All right, we're going back to the other Ogilvy. <laughs> David Ogilvy, who, one of my favorite quotes from him was, the customer is not a moron, she is your wife, is a famous yeah. advertising exec. <laughs> is a famous advertising exec. He was born in West Horsley, England, at around the same time that the Argo was patented. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the Argo was patented in 1922. David Ogilvy was born in West Horsley. He got a scholarship to Oxford University, where he then got thrown out of Oxford University. Do you know why? I'm assuming it was to do with his... No, I have no idea. Uh, I mean, that's the interesting... I'm just saying, that's haven't, the... haven't we all... That's the interesting fact. Haven't Let's we go all with he had an opium problem. <laughs> I mean, that would be common in that period of time, wouldn't it? Sure. In the 20s? Sure, we'll go with that. We'll go with Him it. and everybody else I knew back then. Yeah. <laughs> In the 1920s, as he's going off to University of Oxford, I'm thinking Brideshead revisited, post-First World War, lots of drinking, flappers, opium problem. Okay. But Welcome to the podcast where all of the facts are facts. (laughs) He pulled himself together. Actually, maybe not, because actually most people I know... uh, He went to go work as a chef at the Hotel Majestic in France. So now he's also leading this... No, Dad, I don't want to go to Oxford. I want to be a chef in France. (laughs) So now I have a idea that he's actually doing a Moulin Rouge type existence. Lots of green absinthe. Uh, that will get you dropped out of Oxford University, yeah, I've heard. I've heard. Anyway, he seems to pull himself together. Try, kicked out. Got back to England and at 24, 23 actually, started working as a door-to-door salesman for Arga. Argus at this point in England was still very much an unheard of thing. 
and at 24 he wrote a guide to Argus Salesman. This guide for Argus Salesman, The Fortune, called probably the best sales manual ever written, which is a fairly big accolade for a 24-year-old selling a cooker that at this point really hadn't taken off. He left he left working for Aga and he earned a writing job at Mather and Crow. In 1938, he moved to the US and became associate director at Gallup. You guys know what Gallup is? It's a polling thing, isn't it? Yeah, it also sure, records... That's what horses do after running. <laughs> Walk, trot, run, gallop. Says the equestrian in the corner. You're welcome. <laughs> he Gallup also records audience numbers, I believe, for Television. TV. He, through World War II, he worked for the British Embassy in Washington. Weirdly, he then became an Amish farmer. I mean, you you have to take that break, don't you? I assume that that was just like what in he... Virginia or did he Jewish or Amish? Amish, <laughs> and I think just outside of DC. Okay. So probably... I always get the two of them confused. Yeah, some people do. <laughs> in 1948, he got bored and formed his own ad company in New York called Ogilvy and Mather. He retired to his 37 bedroom chateau, Chateau de Tofu. And if you can't see it, Google it, go to our Instagram page and have a look. thing is awesomely epic. <laughs> uh, it, seriously, no joke. I showed you guys a picture of it. It's really big. Beforehand. Mm-hmm. It's a castle. Just goes to show that advertising absolutely does pay. He maintained an advisory role in his ad company until 1999. Between Darlin and Ogilvy, they are considered the major reason why Olga became a thing. Because one made it, one sold it. I think it's fairly safe to say that perhaps without Ogilvy selling it, it might never have gone anywhere at all. Mm-hmm. Darlin wasn't necessarily in a position to go out and sell his own stuff at that point. Mm-hmm. So it was wonderful that he had this young marketing genius behind his own engineering genius. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now on to Agra itself. In the 1930s, in 31, 321 Argus were bought with sales soaring to 1,705 the year after. That was the period in which he was selling the Argus. Olga started yeah. working for them. In 1934, the first Arga cookbook was published by Sheila Hibben, who was American, to go to show that there were some Argus in America as well. Although I don't think anyone in America has ever heard of it now. Mm-mm. uh, Sheila Hibben explained that Darlin had tackled the problem with a view to creating a stove that would provide all the conveniences and economy that a modern engineering cooker demands. Aga have pretty much maintained the same look from that point up until very, very recently, but their technology has consistently been improving. They've always tried to stay towards the forefront of it. In 1932, Prince Edward of Wales and Prince George the old one, not the current little one, went to Sweden to talk with the famous inventor Darlin himself. The prince expressed much interest in his inventions. Obviously, the Prince of Wales was primarily... Obviously, the Prince of Wales was primarily interested in the lighthouses and his inventions with keeping the coast of Britain safe. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't love a good lighthouse? Particularly when you're Welsh. The Welsh love lighthouses. They got big old rocks out to sea. <laughs> um, Swedish princess Ingrid, however, seemed especially interested in the cooking reigns, which she was seen explaining with great enthusiasm to the princes. Hmm. This is according to a newspaper article I read. Look, it cooks things. Well, it's just... I've never seen anything cooked before, <laughs> because I am royalty. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm thinking. 
looking like she's there. I mean, obviously doing a bang up job from her country. I thought the food yeah. just showed up cooked. I didn't realize it actually got cooked. <laughs> People have to do this. Yeah. She's doing a bang up job from her cut for her country, but you can't really imagine Queen Elizabeth standing around describing how an oven works. An oven works to Donald Trump. <laughs> no, I because can't imagine you've that. Just, the absurdity I can imagine, of like, I can imagine the first part of that. <laughs> Can't imagine the second part of it. But bearing in mind that uh, Edward was famously it, the Playboy Prince mm, before just Harry weird. was the Playboy Prince. It's just weird that they like turned her into like a salesperson for, for, for Aga. They were like, go sell this oven to these British people, to the, to the Welsh. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, I mean, that's, that's the nice thing, right? Like the two biggest Swedish exports are Aga's and Fish and Abba's. Oh. And fish and lighthouses. Mm-hmm. See, what? people learning so much more. And that guy that we thought was Adam thought was from Switzerland, <laughs> but was actually from Sweden. Do that you we think talked about. If it wasn't for Sweden, we wouldn't have Isidore's favorite movie. Mamma mia. Ah, do you think they flat pack shipped to the lighthouses? Probably. Ah, okay. <laughs> Just curious. Oh yeah, there's IKEA. Oh yeah. Okay, we're but doing good. Sweden's great. Sweden is great. Thank mm. you, Sweden. Thank you, Sweden. This episode of History Through a House sponsored by the country Sweden. Sweden, where everything's flat-packed and tastes like fish. <laughs> in 1934, one of the coolest things ever to happen to an Aga happened. Sixteen members of the Graham Land Expedition team took an Aga cooker to the Antarctic. That's pretty cool. I'm going to cook up some penguins. They put it in a tent. I'm supposed to be pretending like you heard this information <laughs> for the first time. Wow, that's really cool. There we go. Why? Yeah, how did they... I always have a hard time imagining how people even get there because, like, my brain is very small. But, like, to imagine that they were, like, we have all of these things and we have all of our provisions and we have our crew and we have the team and everything. And I'm assuming they had to bring a lumber to, like, build a structure there because it's yeah. not like those things existed. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, we're also going to slap a massive cast iron stove on our ship and then take yeah. it with us. I always believe it's just, like, there's, like, the person who's in charge of the expedition... And he's like, well, whatever I want to take is what we're going to yeah. take. Yeah, and he's like, he's got His no... His name is Graham. Graham. Yeah, 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 And he's basically just like, I have 27 butlers. <laughs> well, and actually, that's not too far from the truth. Everybody this will remember was... my name. <laughs> that's not too far from the truth. This was what's considered the last great British expedition. Mm-hmm. So it was. It was a huge plover. Yeah. Spending tons of money. Right. And they took this cooker to the Antarctic. They took a massive (laughs) Swedish invention in the name of Britain. For the next three years while they were down there doing their experiments, the cooker ensured that they all ate well, lived in warmth and comfort, despite the thermostat dropping to below 40 degrees outside. They even had hot water. I don't believe it. (laughs) Even if they had hot water, it wasn't hot very long. It could be, I know. But... It's, a, it's an impressive thing to be able to It's like you, do you that. go back to England and get another tank of oil. <laughs> I assume they were feeding it Coke. Yeah, I don't know. That's but a, still, to keep it running 24 hours a day. But it's a, it's a, what we've learned is that it's a very efficient piece of engineering. I'm just saying. For three years? How, three years is a long time. How big is this boat? They're probably sending shipments of fuel over. Yeah. yeah. Um, I emailed Aga. There is a picture of it that I found online, but I emailed Aga trying to find a better picture, quality picture of it. So if I can find it, we'll put it on the Instagram. I actually didn't realize until I read this that you could heat water off an Aga. Um, like through your pipes or? So it's an attachment that goes onto your Aga and it works on the principle that since your Aga is already hot, running hot water through it will heat the water and you're not heating double amounts of stuff. Oh. 
Um, I did find a newspaper advert that claimed for less than £2 a year, the newest Argo device would give two hot baths and plenty of washing up water a day. Hmm. That was an article in the 1930s, so that was a big deal. Yeah. Introduced as the new standard in 1936, this model later became known as Model 4710. You guess why? No, I have no idea. You said you'd always remember this the <laughs> last time. because it was 47 pounds and 10 sh- pence or shillings? Shillings. 10 shillings. And then it was also known as Model C. It is the first plain Arga cooker with no tank. Plain. Right. What do you mean by plain? It just didn't have a tank or... Yeah, I think it was like what you would see now and think okay. of as an Arga. Okay. Um, I'm also going to, throughout the podcast, kind of give you descriptions of the different Argas for a couple of different reasons. One, well, we're here to learn about the history and that's part of it, but also so that anyone who has an Arga at home can identify which era their Arga may have come from. So... This Arga is your more vintage-looking Arga. It's normally fitted with lids that are enamel all over. Almost always it is converted to oil or gas from solid fuel, so it has a lot of boxes and pipes coming out at the front. In 1938, we're going to bring it back to Exeter again, which is that they built a luxury yacht in Exeter in 1938. I've written it down like this. This is the level of information I have on it. The Exeter Gazette in 1938. Exeter Shipyard build a luxury yacht, yada, yada, yada. Decks are from Bronio white wood. Expensive wood. With teak margins. Interior <coughs> is decorated in mahogany. And they also had an Argo. This sounds like absolute madness. It does sound like madness. And I think it goes to show that they were considered a luxury as well as a practical item. Mm-hmm. Moving forward on the idea that they were a practical option. We're going to kind of look at World War II a little bit. So. Uh, Ew. What? That's disgusting. Everybody's got toenails. Put that in the trash. Where's the trash? Right there. I was going to eat it later. It's a good source of protein. Oh, oh, oh. So we're going to change a little bit and talk about where Argus were produced. The coal, in England. Yes. Hmm. The Colebrookdale Company became part of the Allied Iron Founders, formed in 1929 through a merger of foundries. During the Second World War, the foundry was used for the manufacturing of Fisher and Ludlow and made wings for Lancaster bombers. What were the first two things you said? Fisher and Ludlow. Hmm. It was used by manufacturing company Fisher and Ludlow okay. for making make the wings of Lancaster wings. bombers. It was bought by Arga in 1946, who used the site to make cookers lid tops, Ironlands. The original blast furnace was closed and buried over, but it was preserved as part of the Ironbridge Gorge Museum in 1957. The Okay, for everyone that's English, Ironbridge means a lot because it's the kind of place you go when you are on a school trip to learn about the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Americans, it's basically the British version of... What did we what Williamsburg? Did, well, what, what the Liberty Bell, <laughs> Rockefeller's house, Rockefeller's house. <laughs> so I it, said that the train. <laughs> so it's the Iron Bridge Gorge Museum Trust is made up of ten museums and thirty-five historic sites, including the Iron Bridge Gorge itself. By nineteen fifty-seven, all production had moved to the Colebrookdale in Shropshire, 
where further models, including the chrome-plated lid domes, were being introduced. The reason why I'm kind of giving you a quick rundown of iron in English history is because the next stage that we're talking about in history through a house proper is actually the Iron Age, and this is a really good idea as to where we're going with that. So, centuries later, sadly, in 2017, the Colebrookdale plant uh, making Argos actually closed. 2017? 2017. Still a pretty good run. Yeah, that's a long time. It's been bought by the Iron Bridge Museum, but they had to lay off quite a lot of workers, and the Argo is now being made partly in England, but there's components being brought in for other places. So, having talked a little bit about where Argus were being made at this point, it's really important to know that the British government also heavily relied on Argus through World War II. They were ordering from their munitions workers, for hospitals, and domestic purchases of the Argus also grew massively, and waiting periods were up to six months. I think this, to me, shows a really great idea of efficiency that the Argus had, because during World War II, no one was buying luxury items. If the demand for agar was growing, it was because agar was the most efficient and best way to feed your family at that point, mm -hmm. to heat your home and to heat your water. All right, moving on. The next model of agar came out in 1956. It's easily identified in a couple of different ways. One is it has a low shelf across the back of the agar, which is actually wide enough for you to rest a teacup on. The other way is that the tower rail sits on the brackets with the ends of the rail visible. It was more often than not, a four-oven version. It was more often than not a four-oven version. <laughs> ah, yes. It was more often than not a four-oven version with a one-piece hob that spanned the full width of the cooker and a towel rail that also expanded the full width of the cooker. Two-piece hobs do exist, but most of the time they were one-piece hob. The lid tops are almost always chrome. For 34 years, the agar at this point had only been available in cream, which was, by the way, the colour of the agar that I had growing up and is still considered the most traditional colour. But in 1956, all that changed. The introduction of the new agar deluxe model came in other colours such as pale blue, pale green, grey and white, and they proved hugely popular. In the 1950s, agar had to do something to revive their brand because this is when electric cookers were coming into play. It was also the same time that the famous Arga chrome-plated lid domes were introduced. The 1950s did end up proving to be another successful decade. The cooker established itself at the heart of fine living, and sales reached more than 50,000 units per year. In 1960, we saw the introduction of the iconic black Arga lozenge logo, which is still used today. The changes at this point, though, weren't just cosmetic. Solid fuel was falling out of fashion as people wanted cleaner and more convenient energy sources. This led to the launch of oil and gas-fired argas. What we're really dealing with here is that after World War II, people in World War II were buying argas because they were seen as very efficient, but straight after World War II, all the new technologies that had been invented during the war started to trickle down into domestic mm -hmm. usage. So people were now looking for a new inventive way to cook. Argas may have seen a little more archaic. And Arga did what they could to suddenly fit in with this bright new 1950s, what we think of as a pop art, slightly retro feeling. So they went with colours and it fitted in with the idea of smeg and... What? Smeg fridges. Mm -mm. I know what you're talking about. Um, so they fit in much more with a 1950s kitchen. Mm -hmm. Also at this point, as we talked about briefly, servants were no longer a real thing. Mm -hmm. 
there had been so many people lost during the war and people had had to go and move into more industrial careers. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge lack of domestic staff. Augers allowed people to cook their own food, which may seem not very revolutionary right now, but was fairly revolutionary at the time. Mm -hmm. They could be done with a lot less work. Mm -hmm. In the 1970s, they launched some new colors, including black, which is still really popular today. In 1974, they released a new auger. This was the Deluxe Range Cooker. This is, the, I think, the cooker that we had. Okay. Because our cooker was installed in the early 1990s. Okay. It is easily <clears throat> identified by the small upstand across the back of the hood. It is about an inch high and three quarters of an inch thick. It is not big enough to stand your cup of tea on. Silly. Which, from what I can find online, is a total travesty. <sighs> and people who have Argos really don't like the fact that they can't stand their cup of tea on the ledge well, at the back. Then of find them. an older Aga. Yes. Can't you just, like, you know, put your cup of tea on the Aga? Yes. In England, we like our tradition. Okay. It is easily identified by not only the small upstanding upstand, it also has a tower rail that sits between brackets with the end of the rail hidden in brackets. Try to eat his tooth. It's a good source of calcium. Later models of the Deluxe Arga range may have had a louved screen box section across the back of the hob, depending on the flute type. And that was what mine had. The one that you had when you were growing up? Yeah, growing up. If you have one like... If you have... um, If you have one that has the louve, you most likely have a post-1995 Arga. Mm Mm-hmm. The four Arga versions have a joining strip and separate tower rails or joining strip integral to the model selection. The lid tops are always chrome and it is not possible to fit fully enamel lids. All right, running back to a quick personal newspaper story that I found that always made me laugh from the mid-1900s, which is in January there was a cooker explosion that rocked a house. The kitchen was badly damaged. The roof tiles flew off the ceiling. The bathroom was unusable. All of this is very sad. It was Christmas Eve. But my favorite part about the whole thing was, however, the Christmas dinner was not spoiled because the Fogarty's were fortunate enough to have another Arga to cook on. Domestic tragedy always makes me laugh, too. How fortunate you survive? Everyone survived and they had a great Christmas dinner. Solely, apparently, because of their auger. I think I think the article would have a little bit of a different tone if there had been any casualties. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. You know, 14 of the 16 know. people in the house died, but luckily... The auger survived. People were dealing with a lot of tragedy back then. That's true. That is true. Um, the auger did survive. Okay. In 1985, the auger launched a landmark model, the two-oven EC2, mm. the first electrical auger range cooker, followed two years later by the four-oven EC4. They were starting to make smaller ovens so that they could fit in smaller houses. Mm-hmm. People were at this point moving into flats and apartments and they didn't have room for these big augers. These new models also retained all the traditional features for which auger cookers are known, but they didn't need a flu, again, making them possible in apartments. Mm-hmm. The auger celebrated its 50th birthday early in the 18, oh, 1980s. And in 81, its status as a national institution was recognized when Margaret Thatcher paid it a visit. She was shown a brand new Agra in blue. It's a lovely color, she said, smiling, hinting that she, it smile, hinting that she thought this choice of shade hinted at political allegiance. Mm. 
It was red yesterday, countered the company chairman to much laughter. Okay, who's heard of an Argus saga? We have. You have, because I told you about this when we first recorded. But we're going to pretend like you don't, because there's many, many people out there that won't know what an Argus saga is. Nobody's heard of it then. So, Argus saga is a literary term to describe a type of book. The authors that have become very well connected with it are Joanna Trollope and Jilly Cooper. Joanna Trollope said that literary law has it that it was for her clever brand of detailed domesticity and despair that Terence Blacker coined the label Argus Saga. Joanna Trollope had to say this about it. I like Terence and I grinned when I heard it, but the grin is becoming a trifle fixed. It is very funny, but it tells about a hundredth of the story. It has to do with the London-y view of country living, which is all about green wellies and Labradors. Mm-hmm. It basically was when Aga started to go from being a type of cooker that was famous for being efficient to a brand label. Mm-hmm. At all points, an Aga was an Aga, but this is when it had gone from being just something that you would buy because it was what you needed in the lifestyle that you were living, whether that be in the country where you were cooking dinner for a lot of people, you had to hatch your chicks in it, raise your lambs in it, all the other things that you can do in an Aga that nobody thinks about now, to being a status symbol to show that you have arrived, you have the big country house, mm-hmm. and you spend your day walking your lap. Mm-hmm. Is it like to the price point massively change at this point as well? I found it very hard to figure out price points in Argus. Mm-hmm. The only one I could find was the one that was 47 shillings, which we worked out was about 620 pounds in yeah. That day and age, mm. like if you, which isn't massively expensive when you think about it. No, and I can't see that they were massively expensive through World War Two if the British government was spending yeah. that much money on uh-huh. them. But certainly in the nineteen eighties, their image changed. Mm-hmm. They became less about a practical thing and much more about a status symbol. Publication of the Arga book established Mary Berry as the definitive Arga writer, with the Mail on Sunday describing her as being to Arga what Pavarotti is to opera. Okay. <laughs> it's comparing like apples to oranges, but we'll go with that. That's fine. But Mary Berry also slightly p- typifies yeah. what you would expect of an Agasaga person. Okay, someone who lives that life. Lives that life. She's going to bake her Victoria sponge while her children go to nursery school. She'll hmm. donate to the charity some mince pies at Christmas that she made, mm-hmm. or her Labrador will be in its hunter green Bed. It's Hunter Green Wellies. It's Hunter Green Wellies. <laughs> really, that is honestly where Argus still are today. They are still considered a massively luxury brand. Mm-hmm. The Argus module, a conventional electric cooker with quintessentially Argus styling, was launched in 1996. Was that another smaller model that you could put into a flat or apartment or yeah. whatever? This was actually just a cooker, mm-hmm. but looked like an Argus. Okay. So all the things that Arga had, that being on all the time, the inner heating element that radiated out to cast iron, mm-hmm. heated that, and that was how you cook. This is really when those things start to change. Okay. And it's got a lot to do with the fact that, quite honestly, I think Arga wanted to cash in on this luxury reputation it was having. Mm-hmm. But people weren't using it for all the things that people wanted Argas for originally. Mm-hmm. Originally, you wanted an Arga because you wanted it to be the place that you dried your washing Mm -hmm. you heated your house they could could sell it more based on how it looked really than mm -hmm. anything else exactly now people who are buying argus generally have enough money to go back to putting clothes in a dryer yeah or they don't want 
They don't want to wait. <laughs> they don't want... They want the look, but the not pra- the, yes. the inconvenience. Yes, uh, or what they see as an yes, inconvenience. Yes, exactly. So Arga really, in the late 90s, mid-90s, split into two different groups. You have traditional Arga people and newer Arga people. The newer Arga people definitely fall into the London and thoughts mm-hmm. process, or smaller houses, whereas the traditional Arga people usually are heating these bigger houses, these older houses, and they are using it as a primary source of heating, and they're also using it for everything else that they do in their mm-hmm. day-to-day life. From the year 2000 onwards, the Arga company went through unparalleled innovation, with a third baking oven being added to the existing space, a 13-amp electric model with a household plug being launched in 2004. Mm. Literally, you can just plug it into your wall. And the Arga Intelligent Management System being introduced in 2007. This was followed by the Arga Total Control System in 2011 and the Arga Dual Control System in 2013. What do those things do? (laughs) (laughs) So all of these updated models aim to increase the flexibility and reduce running and service costs. What that means is that now Arga have realized that actually people don't fall into two neat counts of wanting either... Mostly one group. ...the look or just the of tradition, <laughs> that they fall into a whole range of things that they would want. And we fall right into that category, and probably if we can't get the Arga that's in there refurbished at a reasonable price, we will end up buying one of the ones that's kind of considered more of a dual control. Mm-hmm. So it can do a few different jobs for us. I do remember one of the major disadvantages to our Arga growing up was that we had to turn it off in the summer. Mm-hmm. It got too hot, um, and we had to cook using a microwave and an oven, and which seemed very archaic in my life at that point. But now I understand the total practicalities of not having your house heated all summer, mm-hmm. and I can understand why people might want to be able to turn their arbor off, yet still cook, mm-hmm. not have an entire second setup. In 2018 and 2019, the Arga ER3 series was launched. Cookers in this range came with an option of a state-of-the-art induction hob Mm -hmm. and many other innovative features, including the addition of a 90L fan oven and range is in sizes from 60 centimeters to 170 centimeters. Wow, an L fan. I have no idea what that means. Incredible. 160 centimeters? 170 centimeters. It's pretty big. Is that big? That's a meter 70. (laughs) <laughs> that's six feet <laughs> over six no it's five feet is it yeah I think it's about five feet yeah so yeah, you're right. I didn't really understand much of what I said but I do I have seen the new Argus with the induction hobs and they're pretty cool I do like an induction cooktop but there is something kind of amazing about being able to lift and close those cast iron lids they're which really to cool. me is so nostalgically Argus that I don't think I could ever totally forgo the mm-hmm. big lidded dome lids on the right. Okay, the Arga is known for its longevity, with many cookers still operating after more than 50 years. In 2019, in conjunction with the Daily Telegraph, and to celebrate the 300th anniversary of its foundry, Arga set up a competition to find the oldest cooker still in use. There were thousands of entries, but the winning cooker was installed in... 1939. Was it? I don't know. That's close, I think. 2017. (laughs) Longevity. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nope, neither of you were right. Uh, was installed in 1932. 1932. Aww. We'll edit that in. So it was built in 1931, <laughs> so I was right. You said 2017. Did I? No one will know. <laughs> no one will ever know. So really it was about 80 years old, this cooker, and belonged to the Hett family from Sussex. Did they get a free one for winning, or were they just like, good job? I think they just got 
Please out don't. in the back. Yeah. They probably got like a signed headshot of the queen. <laughs> wow, Barry Barry amazing. came personally to well, shake their they hand. Made of Victoria. Actually, sponge. it would totally be worth it. <laughs> you imagine yeah. Mary Barry coming to cook your own Victoria sponge at home? Well, then you shouldn't get rid of ours. Ours is only twenty five years older than that one, and eventually it will be the oldest. So we'll go destroy that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> and all the others. All the other hagas. We'll just buy them and destroy them. All right, guys. That's, that's what the ad money for this is going to go to. <laughs> Dismantling an English institution. All right, guys. Movie. What? Where it's like that's not a very rare baseball card, and he's like, it will be because I'm buying them all for really cheap, and then I'm going to destroy all of them except for this one, which will make it the most rare baseball card. I don't. That sounds. I mean, it it sounds like it could be a movie. Bro, I hope it's not. It was a children's movie. I really hope Mm -hmm. it's not. That's not a good movie. It might have been The Simpsons, or it might have been Dexter's (laughs) Laboratory. Okay, well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Not a movie then. Another guessing game. Oh. 17. How, <laughs> how many people do you think now roughly own an August? 17. Probably at least 17. 17,000 million. I can't remember. Square root of 94. It's a, it's a pretty big number. Is it, are we talking about light years? No, oh, give me a real number. How many people do you think globally have an August? Globally? Globally? How many <laughs> I people we think like that would have drastically changed? Glo- yeah, exactly. Like, how many wow, people live globally? globally? Well, then I have no idea. Uh, I don't know. How many people live in England? 65 million? 66 million? I'm going to say 35 million people in August. In the... In the world. I don't know. I'm going to say like 25 million people? No idea. 100,000. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see if you took both your guesses. Yeah, it'd still be way off. It's 750,000 households in August. Oh. Three quarters of a million. That's not very many. It's not as many as you'd think, right? Mm-mm. Rather However, just, you know, park a car in the middle of the kitchen. <laughs> because that's what you're doing. Just rev the engine. <laughs> to warm the and house then up. Just, yeah, just, yeah, to warm the house up, rev the engine, and just cook on the, Run on the, your water on pipes, the bonnet. Run your water pipes through the exhaust. Mm-hmm. Interesting continental fact. Between 2002 and 2006, France bought 1,500 of Like for like the state of France? No, like that's people in France. Oh, okay. Which is... Which is just English people in France. Oh, that's yeah. That's a good that's point. That's actually probably a really <laughs> good point. That's a really yeah. good point. I wonder what read it's like, and they're all in Provence. Uh, well, <laughs> they must all be English. They huh? must all just be oh, English. Oh, that makes a lot more sense, because I was like, that's really cool. The French are buying no, Augers. The English are buying second Augers. Yep, no, that seems <laughs> way more reasonable. Okay. We love living in France, but we really don't. Yeah. So we bought an Aga cooker again. <laughs> they bought 37 Agas in Belgium. Again, just English people <laughs> they're in third, Belgium. They're third Agas. <laughs> so that's kind of my diatribe about Agas. They were considered or are considered one of the most iconic British brands to ever have existed. More British than Branston Pickle. More British than Branston Pickle. Any more, is it more or less than the Jaguar? I think... There was an article that the BBC did of iconic British brands. Jaguar was very high up the on the Mini list, but Cooper. the Aga, I believe, was third. Wow. I think Mini was first. Uh, should, that's what Aga should have learned from Mini Cooper. Which I don't get, because basically like, the thing that made the Mini Cooper famous was the movie The Italian Job. Yeah. So it's like, The Italian Job <laughs> made a very English car very English. <laughs> well, that's to like, be fair, this is a Swedish invention. Is it, uh, yeah, no, it's are, not. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Thanks, Dora. <laughs> yep. Have you been learning your own things recently? <laughs> you had to read this so many times. No, it was after your Swiss man. Oh, yeah. Well, Sweden and Switzerland are the same place in my mind. Yeah. Gustav Dahlen. Gustav Dahlen. Okay, guys, so thank you for listening to me talk about Gustav Dahlen. 
and David Ogilvy. And I think Gustav Dahlin has got to be one of the coolest humans ever. Mm. Although what we didn't get into as a diatribe, on, not diatribe, but we didn't get into this one is as a segment was that while I think he's very cool and I'm very impressed he invented the Agawal blind, actually his win for his physics Nobel Prize was quite controversial. <sighs> I know, I'm just saying. Yeah, that's just because there's a lot of landlocked countries out there who don't need lighthouses. Yeah, look at stupid. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. What are we going to do with any a lighthouse phys- lamp? <laughs> any physicists out here who want to explain any of the stuff I've talked about because most of it I was She's just reading. like, yeah, like you put the lighthouse in. I'm not going to do a bad accent. <laughs> oh, that was We're bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that what Swedish people sound like? The Swedish chef. Just do that. The Hergenderger. Now, we've lost all of our Swedish listeners. But we were being We were doing that with the beakers. I think we must. we did do that, yeah. But the beakers go, me, 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 me. Yeah. I think we must be the only like non-Swedish podcast to have mentioned Sweden three times in three episodes. Delete that accent. <laughs> okay, so everyone, thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. I really hope you learned something. I know it was a weird jump and track to take, but I felt like Joseph... Oh, my God. Joseph okay, Stalin. so you don't know how many times I've had to add out Joseph Stalin when I'm I mean... You're going to delete it all anyway, Gustav so you don't Stalin. have to explain it to people. Um, well, now she has to. No, she can delete that. <laughs> so delete it. I. You don't want people knowing that you're just sitting in here screaming Joseph Stalin. So thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed learning about Gustav Dahlin, David Ogilvy, and the history of the Aga. For those that have never heard about Naga before, I hope you learned something. For those that have an Aga and whose grandparents cooked on an Aga, I hope it gave you a little walk down nostalgic lane, but also kind of helped to understand that Agas are an innovative brand from start to finish, um, which is really something I hadn't. I don't think I had grasped how much innovation there was at Aga versus just branding. I thought it was going to be very much a conversation about how well they were marketed, how they basically became the Prada of cookers but really from what i've learned they were at the forefront of what they've been doing from the very beginning and that's pretty cool very cool so cool all right so cool on that note (laughs) bye. bye Hi, thank you so much for listening to history through a house if you've enjoyed what you have to hear please go onto itunes and rate and review us Also, we love to hear feedback, things that we may have done wrong, stories that you know that are interesting that we should cover, or houses that you know that you think we should cover. You can find us on Instagram at History Through a House Podcast or on Facebook at History Through a House. You can also email us at historythroughahouse at gmail.com. We really want to hear your feedback and we're really excited to get to know you. Thank you.